With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. It's been a long road. Getting from there to here. It's been a long time. But my time is I can feel a change in the way right now Nothing's in my way And I'm not gonna hold it down no more No, I'm not gonna hold it down Cause I've got faith on the heart This is Dr. Jess Armine coming to you from the Institute for Methylation and Bioindividualized Medicine here in southeastern Pennsylvania. Welcome, everybody. We are expecting a blizzard. <laughs> and I'm still in the office. I'll see if I actually get out of here tonight. But then again, I could live in this office. It's pretty cool. By the way, I'm here seven days a week, so what's the big deal? Anyway, um, as many of you know, we had our seminar last week, uh, the core knowledge course on methylation and bioindividualized medicine, and it was well attended, it was well received, and very soon we will have the video of the course out. Uh, there were many, um, you know, the feedback was universally positive, so I hope that everybody gets an opportunity to uh, look at uh, various uh, portions of the seminar and learn from them. <clears throat> Uh, and so, so that is like the housekeeping stuff for today. Uh, today we have an incredible um, speaker, and uh, she is an expert. She is a nurse anesthetist and is an expert on anesthesia as it relates to the autistic child and genetics. Okay, and we're very, very happy to have her. Uh, her name is Sim Renkin. Uh, Sim is a graduate of the University of Southwestern Louisiana, and Charity Hospital School of Nurse Anesthesia. As a practicing anesthetist for over 25 years, she has witnessed an alarming increase in chronic and autoimmune diseases. Those observations became less academic and more personal after her son was diagnosed with autism. Her son's journey of recovery led to Sin's realization that mainstream medicine is far more interested in merely treating symptoms than asking the difficult questions of why those symptoms exist. And here at the Institute of Methylation and Bioindividualized Medicine, we sit there and go, duh. Okay. <laughs> no offense. It's like, that's why we're here, you know? 
and she recently joined a practice at True Health Medical Center in Naperville, oh. Illinois, and hopes that uh, um, hopefully I've got true information here. And I got to tell you something. I've read a lot of the stuff that she's done, and this is one incredibly intelligent and well-experienced individual. So uh, let's welcome uh, Sin. Welcome. How are you tonight? Hi, um, I'm fine. Uh, one thing on that bio, I, I thought it was, uh, I, I don't work at True Health anymore. Um, I'm practicing as a nurse anesthetist, but I still um, consult a lot with Dr. Usman. She is basically um, the light of my life who helped me with my son and has taught me so much. So um, anyway. Amazing. Okay. Well, you know something, I, uh, being a um, being a healthcare provider that you um, that you engage in, you know, very traditional type care where you're administering anesthesia, um, and it's it's you know it's always been said that uh, anesthesia is um, you know 98% boredom and 2% being scared. You know what? But um, the uh, we need to know uh, what to do with uh, people with genetic polymorphisms and especially children with autism. Um, what are the dangers? What are, uh, you know, we have to put them under anesthesia at some point, okay, for whether right. dental procedures or anything else. And and frankly, this is something I've been very interested in learning about. Um, you know, I know a lot about genetics, but not really how it um, relates to the various anesthetics. So I'm real happy to have you tonight. So I'm going to let you take it and go in whatever direction you'd like. Um, I'm on the chat. If you hear me, ta- If you hear me typing, I have a chat room in front of me. If anybody needs to ask a question, type it in on the chat room. Later on, we'll try and take some calls. Uh, and I'm going to let everybody know that uh, Sim is not able to answer specific questions about specific cases. So if you have general questions, uh, that is uh, that is more appropriate. Uh, remember that on this type of venue, uh, we cannot prescribe, we cannot recommend treatment. Uh, so try and keep your uh, questions on a more general basis. Sin, take it away. Okay. Well, you know, as we all know, you know, our kids are really sick. Um, 43% of our children have at least uh, one or 20 chronic kind of health conditions. We're more toxic. We need more surgeries. And, therefore, we're going to have more exposure to the anesthetics. Um, You know, anesthesia and drugs are necessary to prevent that sympathetic response for surgery. You can't do it without it. you know, if you have certain genetic SNPs that affect the metabolic system that detoxify those drugs, uh, you've got to find ways to talk to your anesthesiologist about your concerns from anesthesia. And so that's what I'm going to try to help you to do today. Um, hopefully one day in the future we'll be able to have an anesthetic plan individualized to our genetics. You know, we'll be able to pop in our 23andMe and it'll tell us what kind of anesthetic we can have. So um, From your anyway, mouth to God's ears. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one day, one day. I mean, unfortunately, as far as... That day's uh, coming. That day's coming. Yeah, yes. yeah, it is It is coming. But, you know, the the problem with autism and uh, and anesthesia, you know, uh, for uh, basic, I'm sorry, anesthesia for autistic kids is there's not that much out there in the literature. Um, there is a, a few articles. I wrote an article a couple of years ago um Alyssa Davis wrote an article on anesthesia and sedation risk, and you can find this pretty much on, online. Um, but, you know, how do we educate our anesthesiologists about our concerns? You know, that, that's the, the big problem. Um, the thing about 
the anesthesiologist, they don't understand that our kids have a medical disease, not a mental disease, okay? You know, our kids have all kinds of problems. They have GI dysfunction. They have immune system dysregulation. They have inflammation, mitochondrial dysfunction. There's a lot of stuff out there in the literature about that. Heavy metal poisoning, oxidative stress. Um, you know, some of them have seizures, of course, genetic disorders. And, um, of course, on top of all that, infections and autonomic nervous system dysfunction. You can look at an autistic kid, and, and a lot of them are pale and their eyes are dilated. They're in this, like, sympathetic uh, mode all the time. And a lot of them have, you know, neurological problems too. So, you know, one of the things that anesthesiologists don't understand is that these children have impaired detox pathways, and they're not going to ma- metabolize the drugs in a normal fashion. Um, one of the big things I find that uh, anesthesiologists don't understand is that they'll meet that, you know, the kids will wake up and they'll meet that criteria for the discharge, but then they'll go home and they'll have some type of regression or they'll lose some educational skills or behavioral skills, and that's one thing that we need to really get them to understand. Go ahead. Yeah. You okay? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> um a few years ago, uh, they came out with a study that said um, early exposure to anesthetics caused developmental delays. Did you remember hearing about that in 2011? Mm-hmm. They came, yes. uh, it was on CNN. It, it's basically anesthesia in kids linked to learning disabilities and ADHD. Uh, they came out with that in, like, 2011. And it was all over the news and... What they based it on was this study out of Mayo University. In 2009, um, a study by Wilder and Flick, um, basically it was called Early Exposure to Anesthesia and Learning Disabilities in a Population-Based Cohort. Okay? At Mayo, it's a really interesting study because Mayo University has a big database that they started in 1985, and they followed kids from 1980, um, I'm sorry, 1984 for 20 years, okay? And wow. what they did is they, uh, in this, in this um, study, they found that uh, kids from the age of zero to four who were exposed to one anesthetic in that period were okay, but exposed to two or more anesthetics in that period had an increased risk of developmental delays or incidents of developmental delays. So, you know, I started in about 1984, okay, and all we had in our toolbox for kids that we used to put kids to sleep with was a gas called halothane, okay? Halothane, I don't know if you remember, it used to have halothane hepatitis. Do you remember that, Jeff? Yes. Yes, yeah, I do. It was it was a very very toxic. You know, nowadays we have gases that are hardly metabolized, and that's why we have this in and out anesthesia. But this stuff used to just stay in your body for a couple of days, and it was very toxic to the liver. So we gave lots of halothane, and then we gave nitrous oxide. Now nitrous oxide basically um, brought the gas in faster, so you could get to sleep faster. And we, we could give less of this toxic substance. But we know what nitrous does. Nitrous depletes your B12, and it screws up your methylation cycle if you have a deficient B12. So we gave this really toxic substance, right? And then we mm-hmm. screwed up their methylation by giving nitrous, okay? So, you know, you can And you directly, kind of, it was directly screwed right. up. 
I mean, it's like right. a, this so, major, major concentration of it. It's not just, it was like, wham. Right. So let's go just ahead, fast forward to, to where we are now. So, what, you know, what does that tell you? Tell us, it says, exposure of a developer brain to toxins causes learning disabilities, Right. So what do we have in our society mm-hmm. now? We have BPA, we have Roundup, we have antibiotics overuse, we have the fetal exposures that they get from the mom, the, all the environment, environmental um, toxins that, that children are exposed to, the GMOs, the vaccines, and all the toxins in them. So in my opinion, I think these people just did a study of what causes autism, you know, exposure of a developing brain to, toxic, to toxins causes learning disabilities. You know, it's 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 just trying to you know realize that there's a tipping point in our kids. Um, also, there was another study in 2014, and that was out in Lancet. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It was in February 2014. It was in Lancet Neurology, and it was a title: Neurobehavioral Effects of Developmental Toxicity, and they talked about uh, the summary of this article was disorders of neurodevelopmental uh, de- development. I'm sorry, affect 10 to 15 percent of births, and they agree that toxic chemicals might be triggering this a recent increase in, in all of these neurodevelopmental disabilities among children, and that all of these things such as lead and mercury and arsenic and PCB and fluoride and pesticides, and all of the others, basically. Um, even this, the, the, the tax combination could be causing these problems. Um, and they, they basically proposed a global prevention strategy. But I don't remember hearing about this in the news. I mean, this wasn't in the news at all. I think this was a pretty big study. But we have to do something. We have to do something about the toxins in the environment and how it's affecting our kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, okay. this 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 is amazing. You know, the kids are exposed. I, I think one of the reasons I'm, I'm convinced that the reason for the increasing rate of autism is the, the collection of toxicity that we're that our neurological systems are exposed to. And I know that we have genetic breeding, <clears throat> and I think that the combination or the constellation of those things conspire to uh, create neural injury, and then it just cascades and creates more inflammation and, you know, right, oh, right, right, down, right. right down the path, you know? I mean, I, I've even looked at some studies um, put out uh, by mainstream medicine saying that, you know, all these kids are coming into the hospital. Hospital kids receive multiple medications. I mean, kids go into hospitals, they receive all these medications, and we don't really understand all the implications and all the um, – side effects and, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't pull back a little bit. We just don't understand, you know, a lot of the drugs aren't even tested in children. So, you know, one of the things that came out of this study is that they they formed a, uh, the FDA and the International Anesthesia Research Society formed this kind of public-private thing. So they're studying this. It's called Smart Tots. And it's going to take, like they say, 15 years and, you know, $20 million to study how anesthesia is affecting the kids. So they are, you know, the anesthesia community is looking at this um, problem right now. Um, I think they need to hurry it up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, because, um, <laughs> yeah, you're, you you mentioned that um, 
uh, about children uh, regressing after an anesthetic. Uh, I wonder if you could, um, uh, you know, maybe address that a little bit more specifically as to your opinion, maybe give some examples and let our uh, listeners understand the the biochemical and genetic basis of why uh, that actually happens. Right. Well, you know, the thing is is that when kids wake up, they seem fine, but then, you know, parents may bring them home and they might have a regression. You know, I've had a lot of parents tell me their kids lost language and lost eye contact, they fatigued or even slept hours after anesthetic. So, you know, when you have um, uh, a regression after anesthesia, I mean, there's multitude of factors that can happen. Genetics play a big part. If you have CYP enzymes or MTHFR, anything that affects, you know, the mitochondria or the or the uh, methylation cycle or even liver detoxification, you're not gonna you're not gonna uh, process those drugs in a normal fashion. And it's always it's gonna be the, the kid's health status before the anesthetic. It's you have to take into effect, uh, you know, the length of the procedure. Uh, if there's any infections, uh, any kind of environmental exposures uh, before or after the surgeries, and, of course, their detoxification and glutathione status. Um, you know, a lot of uh, – I've talked to a lot of parents um, uh, about, you know, their kids undergoing anesthesia, and I'll tell you a, a couple of stories. Uh, I have uh, – there was a young girl. She was about 12, and ever since she was an infant – she'd have to go into the hospital and she'd put things in her ears. You know, our, our, our kids put things in their ears. Right. So she would go into the hospital and she would sleep and sleep for hours. It was only a two-minute procedure, but she would sleep for hours after the anesthetic. And usually on ear, you know, when we do ear tubes or, um, you know, short little cases like that, we just put a mask on, they breathe a little bit of gas, and, and we're done. It really doesn't, uh, you know, take very long. But sometimes routinely they do give Tylenol uh, suppositories to the little kids. And um, anyway, she, she ever, she slept all time, sleeping forever. So I talked to her. I said, well, just ask them if they can just do a little bit of gas and, um, you know, ask them, don't tell them not to give any Tylenol. That might be causing her to sleep a lot. And um, so they, they were, they kind of fought her for a while. You know, the anesthesiologist wasn't too cooperative, but they finally agreed to just do a little bit of oral Versed. And um, and a little bit of gas. Now this this girl was a big girl, um, but you know they didn't really listen to the parents. She was very very docile, very sweet. I mean she wasn't going to fight anybody, uh, but they they did it with the first and the and the and a little bit of gas. And she only slept for about an hour. She didn't sleep that long. Well, finally next time when they and they they did it, they just did it with gas, and she was awake when she came out. So, you know, I feel that, you know, you have to be careful because a lot of people give drugs routinely, and, and that's the hard part. You know, you have, to, you have to ask what they're giving to the child, and you have to just ask them to keep, keep it simple. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, also, uh, next story I want to tell you is about a little, uh, little boy who had a uh, – he was probably around 10, and he had an MRI procedure. And – you know, usually, you know, a lot of these kids have mitochondrial dysfunction, and you have to be cautious when you use propofol, which is uh, uh, a sedative. And sometimes when you do MRIs, they use, you just have to keep them still. So they put them on a drip, uh, and 
and, and that was fine. But the problem was is that he had an MRI, and then a day later he had another MRI. So he got two big doses of propofol. And what happened is that he was fine. He woke up. They went home. But the child was very tired and very weak and very fatigued for about a week or two. And what propofol does is that it affects that mitochondrial, uh, 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 basically affects the Krebs cycle, and the child didn't make enough ATP, so he was very fatigued for a while. Um, another case that, uh, so, I mean, you have to be careful uh, when you have a child with mitochondrial dysfunction, and they have to, and we'll talk a little bit more about the precautions you can take with, with all of our kids. But uh, a, a gigantic, a big dose of propofol may not be appropriate for someone with mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, another case was uh, an adult that I talked to. She had a, a minor GYN procedure that only took about 30 minutes, and she got the normal stuff that you would get, uh, but she took hours to wake up also. So she sent me her 23andMe, and she sent me her um, her anesthesia record, and I looked at both, and she, of course she had a lot of CYP++ uh, and plus minus uh, enzymes, uh, uh, and SNPs in her enzymes, and she had the MTHFR. And I looked at her record, and she got, you know, the normal stuff. It's, and it was odd that she didn't wake up, but then at the end of the case, they gave her a gram of IV Tylenol. So and basically she had the genetic problems of not being able to detoxify, and they gave her drugs, and then they gave her Tylenol, which basically zapped away 85% of her glutathione, and she wasn't able to metabolize these drugs in the normal fashion, and it took her a while to wake up. So she was a little concerned about this because she had to go back and have another procedure. So, you know, in my opinion, I think it was the Tylenol that um, basically gave her problems with metabolizing these drugs. So, you know, a lot of factors come into play when you, when you have a regression with anesthesia. So you have to kind of, um, you know, look at each one of them. Okay? What do you think the Tylenol does? I, um, I understand that it interferes with, uh, with um, uh, coenzyme Q10 or, or the mitochondrial function, but what actually, what actually do you think is happening? Well, the, the, we'll talk about that a little bit more later, too, but the... the Basically, a lot of these kids are deficient in sulfation and the PST enzyme. So um, basically, when you use the, the, the Tylenol, it leads to overproduction of that toxic metabolite, the NAPQI metabolite, mm-hmm. and that um, basically reduces your ability to detoxify. And there's a whole – I'm going to talk about that a little bit later because there's a really good article that came out about a year or two ago about um, um, Tylenol. But, you know, as far as, you know, there's, for people, you know, who are looking for for some information on uh, anesthesia and autism, uh, about a year ago, uh, they came out with a really good article. It was, it's called Anesthesia for Children with Special Needs, Including Autism Spectrum Disorder. It was put out by the British Journal of Anesthesia. And it's very easy to find online. Uh, Allison Short and Allison Calder, I'm sorry, Judith Allison Short and Allison Calder were the, um, uh, wrote the paper. Uh, the good thing about this paper is that it looked at a lot of the social things that you have to worry about with a kid. Um, it, 
it basically talked about the kids having many physical problems, psychological problems, social problems. They even talked about augmentative and assistive communication, okay? Uh, and even talked about, um, you know, the, a good pre-op diagnosis and limiting, uh, listening to the parents. And they even had, like, autism do's and autism don'ts. Like, the autism do's was, you know, want to minimize the waiting times. You want to warn before you make physical contact. Uh, speak quietly and gently, um, give clear explana- explanations. I mean, really, it's, it's a very good article for you to get down. They even have a, um, a picture communication uh, board that you can use. Um, another uh, very interesting part of this is that they did in this article did talk about uh, that ASD is associated with biochemical and metabolic abnormalities. So, you know, they even talked about mitochondrial dysfunction and increased lactate and B vitamin deficiencies, um, increased oxidative stress in the kids. But, you know, of course they didn't say anything about gut problems, but, you know, of course this is the British Journal of Anesthesia, so they didn't want to say anything about that. Um, Oh, God forbid. But, yeah. (laughs) So, um, so they did, and they did in this article say that, you know, they, you have an unpredictable regression in skills and behavior. And in this article, they did say uh, it's appropriate, therefore, to adopt an anesthetic technique suitable for patients with mitochondrial disease. And those things are you want good hydration, minimal fasting, you want to, uh, you give normal saline instead of the lactated lingers. you want to maintain their blood glucose, body temperature, and acid-base balance, and, and and avoidance of oxidative stress. And that's just, you know, incorporated into uh, everybody's anesthetic, really. Um, The only thing I didn't, you know, the good thing, I like what they said in the article. They did say, um, while sedative premedication may have been necessary to allow induction of anesthesia, there are advantages to keeping the anesthetic plan as simple, straightforward, and flexible as possible. I'm so glad they said that because that's, that's what you need to do. You've got to keep it simple. Um, you know, we, we in medicine, we revert to so many protocols where we give these many drugs and those many drugs to this and that problem, and sometimes you've got to less is more, especially with, with uh, autistic kids. The only thing I didn't mm-hmm. agree with, they, they agreed to use Tylenol, and that's, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. Um, so when an anesthesiologist prepares for an anesthetic for a child with a developmental delay, um, we have to look at some medical concerns that are going to affect the anesthesia choices. You know, one of the medical concerns are going to be methylation. Um, if the kid has mitochondrial dysfunction, if the kid has seizures, okay, or um, any health status, you know, the health status before the procedure, if they were sick. I mean, if your kid is going to have an elective procedure and he's been sick, try to, you know, don't have it. You know, common sense should tell you wait till he's a little bit healthier before you undergo, um, you know, surgery. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff out in the literature that uh, discusses autism and methylation. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's just getting your our anesthesiologist to understand that. Um, uh, you know, even MTHFR, even in the adult population, is implicated in colon cancer and breast cancer, heart disease. So, uh, you know, we 
the anesthesia community is pretty much aware of uh, the MTHFR. And, you know, one of the big things with MTHFR is that you don't want to use nitrous oxide because it depletes your B12 uh, and it screws up methylation. Um, there was a study in, in 2003 uh, uh, that came out where a child who had uh, two uh, surgeries in a row uh, had adverse effects and he had the MTHFR. Um, and w what happened is that he had two uh, surgeries in a row in just a few days apart, that's probably about an hour to each one, and he had nitrous oxide with both of them. So, uh, you know, out of that, they had that study, and um, I think that's what really uh, showed the anesthesia community that they have to look out for MTHFR. The, the good thing about this, we don't use nitrous that much anymore in the operating room. It's a rarity. You still use it in um, dental surgery, but we've stopped using it in the operating room. But it is good to mention also if you have a child who has an MTHFR, to mention that to the anesthesiologist so they don't use it. Um, there's a, a good article um, that ex explains this a little bit more. Uh, and it's very easy to get on the Internet. It's when nitrous oxide is no laughing matter. It's by BAUM, B-A-U-M. And this was um, published in Pediatric Anesthesia in 2007. And it kind of discusses uh, uh, the methylation cycle and why uh, not to use uh, uh, nitrous oxide. Um, what's, what's really funny, uh, years ago... Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was, I, I, just to interject, um, what <clears throat> a lot of our a lot of our listeners are, believe it or not, uh, more sophisticated in methylation than uh, <laughs> most healthcare providers yeah. that I know. Uh, <laughs> True. Could you and and I and I and uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but uh, for the moms out there, and and I've always said that um, there's nothing more. Uh, impressive than a mother who is researching for her sick child. Uh, right. Is there a sort of list of SNPs that they should be looking for that would clue them in to say, hey, we better be careful about anesthesia because I see this, 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 and this? Well, I mean, you're going to, you know, the basic ones, the MTHFR, uh, you know, it, it's the whole the whole thing is any any of those SNPs that affect the folate pathway, um, any of the SNPs that you know affect uh, the mitochondrial pathway, and there's a bunch of them. I mean, I know from even your uh, little uh, uh, presentation that uh, you know the problem is you're not going to have the doctors. Was, that was two hours long, yeah. and it took me ten hours. Yeah, to no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just rather well, I mean, sorry. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, the whole thing about it's methylation is you have so many of the enzymes. You know, the the superoxide dimutase enzymes. So, uh, they're they're the ones that affect anything that affects glucosion, anything that affects methylation. I mean, the whole point is is that you know you 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 have a child who's sick, whose detox pathways aren't working the right way. 
So you want to make sure your anesthesiologist knows not to, 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 to give the drugs that cause even a further depression of those detox pathways. The thing about this article, when nitrous oxide is no laughing matter with bomb, it explains everything. It's a good article to basically print and bring to your anesthesiologist. Which, and he'll, it'll give him an explanation of methylation if he doesn't understand it. So if I'm reading you right, um, okay. the SNPs like in the, C, in the CYP areas, okay, uh-huh. your MTHFRs, MTR, MTRRs, uh, specifically the superoxide dismutase, the nitrous oxide synthase, uh, right. NOS and SODs, uh, certainly any of the polymorphisms in the electron transport chain like the NDUFS, the COX, the UQCRC2 or the right, uh, right. ATP pathways, anything that might, might under any kind of oxidative stress, prevent the entry of the electron donors into the mitochondrial pathway. So anything that would help either block detoxification, uh, block right. transulfuration, CBS, uh, um, CBS mainly, and, um, or, and then block the electron transport chain might be something that, you know, the more you have of it, uh, you know, this puts the body, surgery itself puts the body under a major stress. And then oh, putting right, right. toxic chemicals in there that are necessary, certainly, but still have to be detoxified by the liver right. pathways. And right. after the free radicals have to be conjugated out. And um, and if certain if certain things are going to mess with the B12 or, or uh, 5-methylfolate or whatever, uh, they should. The hints are going to be at MTHFR and the methylation pathways and those things that um, detoxify free radicals. And right. Well, I mean, you know, there's a point though that you know you have to give these drugs for the anesthetics. So, um, you know, and a lot of drugs affect. There's a whole class of drugs that affect methylation. There's a whole class of drugs. A lot of drugs affect mitochondrial function also. But, um, you know, you can't do anesthesia without them. So we're trying to make sure that, you know, we can do this in the simplest way possible and let the anesthesiologist know that you have problems with methylation, you have problems with detoxification, you have problems, um, you know, with detoxifying drugs uh, because you have these genetic SNPs. Um, which really kind of funny, uh, years ago, um, before I even started all this, when my son was only one, uh, I came home from work one day, and I had numbness in my hands and my face. Didn't know what it was. I got put in an MRI machine. Nobody could figure out what it was. It, was, it would go on and off, and the neurologist said sometimes people get numb. That was my diagnosis. So I got on the Internet, and I said, being an ethicist for so many years, it must be something that I've been exposed to. So I found an article um, and you're looking at 15 years ago, I found an article on the Internet said that people who recreationally use nitrous presented to the emergency rooms with numbness all over their bodies. So every Friday, I would do a room full of kids for a, a, a dentist. And back in those days, we turned seven of nitrous and, you know, seven liters of nitrous and two of oxygen, and we put the gas on, and the kids would squirm, and we're breathing it the whole time. So I noticed that when I would do kids, I would get numb. 
I didn't make the connection that it was B12, and, of course, I have the MTHFR, but I was getting like a neuropathy from a chronic exposure of nitrous oxide. So, you know, you have to, uh, and, you know, later on I found out, well, now I have to take B12, and now, I, you know, I stay away from nitrous. I stopped doing kids for a while because I, I didn't understand why I was getting numb. But it was wow. from, you know, the nitrous oxide. So, you know, a lot of kids also have, um, you know, the mitochondrial dysfunction. And, you know, mitos even implicated in Alzheimer's and dementia and a lot of the, uh, you know, diseases such as lupus and MS and ALS. Uh, a lot of kids uh, suffer from mito dysfunction. There's a lot of research, a lot of articles uh, uh, out there. Uh, an anesthesiologist at Kennedy Creeker, Dr. Richard Kelly, he wrote a lot of papers on mito disease and anesthesia. And um, basically it's, it's just taken the mito precautions, the same thing that they said in this um, British Journal of Anesthesia article, about an early case time, no lactated ringers, uh, avoiding large doses of propofol. So if you have a kid who has a mito dysfunction, uh, you need to tell the anesthesiologist that so they won't use those big doses of the propofol. But, you know, as I said before, unfortunately most drugs affect mitochondrial function. So uh, it, it's good to let them know that your kid does have a documented case of it. And, of course, what do we do? We usually use supplements to uh, support the mitochondria. So that's another thing that we can do to help. Now, how would you know if somebody has – I know there's a difference between mitochondrial disease and mitochondrial dysfunction, um, mm-hmm. but I don't uh, – how would you make that differentiation? Um, there, well, mitochondrial dysfunction is – I mean, disease is uh, a much more severe case. But uh, Dr. Rossignol and Dr. Fry in the autism community have made a lot of papers out on mitochondrial dysfunction in, in autism. I mean, it's, uh, you've got a lot of hypotonia kids and um, developmental delays. Um, there's, uh, you know, disease is, you know, a disease is where it's severe mito disease where, you know, you can't breathe, you know, where it's... Uh, more motor, if if you kind of understand me in a way. You know, that's a difference. Um, I'm having a little trouble disease. hearing you. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. A mito, mito, mitochondrial disease is a more severe form. A dysfunction, especially in autistic kids, you see more fatigue, you see more a little bit more hypotonia. You know, a lot of our kids don't, um, you know, ride bikes until uh, much later or, you know, they're very fatigued. They don't participate in a lot of sports and things like that. So, um, and you, and basically it's your Krebs cycle, you know. If you, what do you do to feed in that Krebs cycle? You have the breakdown of protein and the breakdown of fats. And if we have kids with GI problems, they're not feeding the nutrients in that Krebs cycle and they won't make ATP and energy. No, I agree with you. That's um, I didn't know. Yeah. You were... <laughs> yeah, sorry, but um, there's you know there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of kids in the autism community is on some type of mito support. You know, it's a bunch of B vitamins, some CoQ10, 
um, you know, riboflavin. There's a, you know, mitosupport uh, supplement that a lot of the kids are on that they seem to do very well on. And there is what um what mito support supplements <clears throat> do you usually see the children on um well i know that you know my son is is uh in, on a compounded one usually the the biomedical doctors will um compound a uh a supplement depending on on the child and their needs and based on their um uh biomedical testing I think a lot of, you know, people who are going to the, the biomedical doctors with their kids for autism, a lot of them are on some type of mitochondrial support. Are they, I sincerely hope they are because that's the main issue. Right, right. Okay, um, this, that very few people, I think, out there, uh, many doctors play lip service to the mitochondrial function because up until a few years ago, it wasn't that well understood, and it was always thought to be mitochondrial disease, and there was nothing you could do about it. Right. Uh, presently, presently, we know that there are you can there are numerous ways of getting the mitochondrial the mitochondria to function again. Uh, you got to get rid of the oxidative stress, or at least get it down to a reasonable level before you start treating it. But you know, uh, people, I think, need to hear some of the supplements that are generally used because uh, there are a lot of practitioners, allopathic and alternative, who are treating things, shall we say, partially. Okay, yeah. either due to, I'll, I'll give them the, a break and say because they don't know. So I know that like coenzyme Q10 would be something that, um, something that we would usually use. Um, either NADH or uh, NAD or so forth. Do you have uh, any uh, any suggestions of other things that help the mitochondrial pathway, just generally speaking? Well, I know that you know on some there's a lot of websites on um, mitochondrial dysfunction and, and a disease, and I know that there's uh, certain uh, protocols that they follow. I mean, even mainstream medicine has a protocol for uh, mito support. Oh, God forbid, if so, they didn't have a protocol, they wouldn't know which way to walk. Yeah, you know? yeah, they do. yeah, of course, yeah. I'm sorry. But they, no, they do know. have protocols. They do, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of the people that treat uh, some of the mitochondrial disease and dysfunction, I mean, it's becoming um, uh, more aware. I mean, there, a lot of people are more aware of it. A lot of doctors are more aware of it. So they are treating it, and there are specific protocols, I think maybe out of Kennedy Krieger. They're doing a lot out of there. They have a lot of that on their website. So that's what I'm saying. A lot of the kids are on some type of mito support, and that's something that you really need to do under a doctor's care. You really shouldn't do that on your own. You should get the proper testing um, uh, and, and then have a doctor uh, help you with that instead of doing that on your, on your own with your child. What, is that, what do you think is the proper testing, or what can you um, – share with our audience, Bethany. Uh, the reason I'm, I'm jumping on Mito right now, because I know you're an expert, uh, and I and I, I want to pick your brain about uh, uh, the diagnosis or at least the evaluation and treatment of mitochondrial dysfunction because <clears throat> it is such a salient point that is often overlooked. So um, 
maybe could you share with us some of the testing that you usually see that um, would that people do to say, oh, we have mitochondrial dysfunction, we don't have mitochondrial dysfunction? Um, well, I mean, there, there's a lot of blood tests. They, they usually do uh, carnitine levels. Um, there's a lot of functional medicine testing that they do. Um, Dr. Fry out of, I think he's, I'm not sure where, I think he's in Texas now. Um, he's doing yeah. some stuff with the folate, um, measuring, um, you know, folate in, in the cerebral spinal fluid. Um, this is something, you know, the mito testing you should get under a doctor's care, and then they can uh, figure out, uh, you know, exactly what you need for a mito support. But there's, doctor, there's a lot of stuff on the Internet, Dr. Rossignol and Dr. Fry. And I know that mm-hmm. uh, Mito Action is a website. I think that they have a lot of information. It's uh, my, mitochondrial uh, disease. Website. Did you say Mito Action? Because I'm going to Mito Action. Yeah, yeah. So you can kind of get a lot of information on um, mitochondrial disease on that. Okay. Hmm. I'm putting it on the uh, on the chat room. Okay. So that people can see um, some of the things that you mentioned. I like to to um, put out there so people can uh, look at it. You know. Okay. But um, so I, I think the takeaway here is that mitochondrial function slash dysfunction is a major major issue that. Um, is involved in all chronic diseases and is especially of consideration when one wants to um one wants to consider anesthesia. Right, right. Well, I mean, the whole point is is that, you know, your Krebs cycle, that's the you know, what feeds into your Krebs cycle is the breakdown of 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 your food, of your of your fats, of your proteins, and it goes in, and it goes into the Krebs cycle and makes ATP and energy. And what what slows down the Krebs cycle is all the toxins too. So you know it, it's a whole whole body approach. You know when you when you even you just don't want to treat mito. You want to treat you want you want to treat the gut and you want to treat the kid and you want to treat the environment. So um, it's a whole body kind of thing to kind of detoxify. And once you detoxify, I think your mito, mitochondrial function is going to get a whole lot better also. True. Very true. But, you know, as we're talking about, you know, mitochondrial function and anesthesia, you know, the problem is is that you have to have drugs for the anesthetic. And a lot of these drugs affect mitochondrial function. So if you have some SNPs in your pathway in your 23andMe that's going to affect uh, mitochondrial function, you, you, it's best to let the anesthesiologist know. So he can use the drugs that will affect the mitochondrial function the least. You know, he won't use that big, gigantic dose of propofol. Okay? You know, this, segue, this way, segues into a really important part of our conversation, uh, and we spoke about this just prior to, prior to going on the air. Um, I think we really need to know how to speak to our doctors, how to speak right. to the anesthesiologist. What, what do we need to say or do to 
get them to listen. Now, I know everybody in the whole world is just sitting up saying, this is what I'm here for. Please tell me. Because, yeah. let's face it, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, it's, it's, all in the way, it's all in the way you approach it. You know, oh, I, I tell my patients, right. don't ever walk in and say, this chiropractor said this. I tell them exactly how to approach their doctors. So if you could um, enlighten us, it would be very helpful. Okay. Well, you know, you have to have drugs for an anesthetic. And the thing is, is that, you know, you can't go in there and say, don't use this drug, don't use this drug, don't use this drug, because they will think of you as crazy mom or crazy parent. So, you know, another way to approach this is that, you know, you have to go in there and say, look, you know, I have a kid who's very sick or I have a kid who's had some problems with this before. And, you know, he's got some genetic sniffs that, you know, he may not, he may react to the drugs a little bit differently. Um, uh, you have to kind of go in that direction instead of saying, don't use this because he has minor dysfunction or don't use this because he has this. Because you have to use drugs for the anesthetic. I mean, that's, that's a given. But when you think about it, you, want it, you have to look at the risk versus the benefit. <clears throat> An example, we know that nitrous oxide depletes your methylation. Okay, now they use a lot in dental anesthesia. What you have, to, and and you know that, you know it depletes methylation and it and it and it basically depletes your B12. So if you can support that pathway and give some B12 before and after the surgery, uh, you'll it will help. So what I'm, well, what I'm trying to say is that is it better for you to have? Let's say you have a tooth pulled. Is it better to have? 10 minutes of nitrous oxide in a chair, you get that tooth pulled right away, or have to go into the hospital and be put under and use gas, okay? What's going to be better for the child, a few minutes of nitrous or a whole anesthetic with a whole bunch of drugs, okay? Do you understand that? Sure, the whole bit of risk-benefit okay. factor, sure. Yeah, it's, so you have to kind of... It's like, it's like every that. other word in my in my consultations, yeah. Right, right. So, I mean, the best thing to do is, you know, call the anesthesia department to to discuss your concerns. You know, call them pre-op. Um, talk to them. Let them know any kind of physical, any kind of communication problems, behavioral problems, social ch- problems, anything that the anesthesiologist know, uh, should know to make that experience go a little bit s- smoother. Um you want to ask for an early surgery time. You know, our, our kids do better in the morning anyway. Um, it's going to be um, better to get that early time and get it over with. Uh, make sure that the doctor knows that any kind of history of problems with previous anesthetics or any kind of any drugs, especially if the child had any kind of recent fever or cold or infection, if he has and if it's a surgery that doesn't need to be done, make sure he's in the best health that he can be in before you have that surgery. One of the things you need to try to talk to him about is you want to just try to talk to him about any kind of medical or metabolic problems that affect your child. You know, talk to him, say, look, I've got a child with the MTHFR. I've got a child who has mitochondrial dysfunctions. On, he's on mitosupport. Uh, he has a history of seizures. He has, he has problems with intoxication. His glutathione is low or um, he's had surgery before and he's had trouble waking up, um, you want to try to explain to them in that fact instead of saying, don't give nitrous oxide, don't give propofol, 
you understand what I'm saying? If if you go in right. in that direction and try to get them to understand, and, and you know, anesthesia is pretty individualized to each patient, so um, he should make that decision of looking at all the things that you present to him. Um, make sure that they know if he has any allergy to drugs or even any kind of foods. Really important to let them know what kind of medications or supplements they're on. Um, one of the things that you should talk with them about is the administration of any other drugs that they might give. Uh, one of the things, and we can talk about Tylenol a little bit here now. Um, Great. You know, Tylenol is one of the most used drugs in in the medical community. It's uh, They had an article that came out. Uh, have you read that article, Jess? Uh, it was by William Shaw. Um, I read a lot of articles on Tylenol. Which one was this? Okay. <laughs> well, this this one came out. This is pretty recent. It came out uh, 2013. It was in the Journal of Restorative Medicine. Very easy to get on the internet. Just do a Google search on autism, Tylenol, and Shaw, and it will pop mm-hmm. up on the Great Plains web website. And you know what he found is a really good article. Uh, about acetaminophen and how he thinks it's implicated in the autism epidemic. Uh, One thing that was very interesting, and I didn't know about that, is, you know, Cuba, Cuba's autism, I think they have 185 cases out of a total population of 11 um, million people. That's That's all they have. Yeah. They have a highly vaccinated population, okay? But there's hmm. a difference. They do not use Tylenol for fever over there at all. Um, they use another drug called uh, metamazole. It's used in other countries, but they don't use it in the United States because it has a association with um, a granular cytosis. So... I find that to be pretty interesting that they, you know, they advise parents. Um, they they don't give acetaminophen. It is basically a prescription drug over there. I mean, you know, in the United States, they've already, you know, people, I did this with my son. You know, we gave Tylenol with every single vaccine. So you injected um, all those toxins in the vaccines, and then you basically took away their ability to, to get the drug out. So um, even they even just they had a the FDA warning of probably a few months ago. I don't know if you remember this, but they basically informed the medical community to only use a 325 milligram dose when you put it with another drug. You know, you have Tylenol with codeine and some other mm-hmm. drugs. They reduced that. Uh, thing and they even came out. Um, they're even implicating uh, Tylenol taken during pregnancy has increased risk of uh, autism and developmental delays. Also, and I think the FDA just came out with another thing um, recently in the last two weeks about pregnancy and Tylenol, but they were kind of wishy-washy about it and didn't really say um, no, don't use it, but just to call your doctor and use it only if necessary. So uh, in this uh, paper also, and there's study after study that shows that uh, 
the rate of asthma correlates with the use of acetaminophen. Um, we had a big increase in the in in that time frame of asthma, and there are studies that have come out saying that, uh, and it's pretty well pretty much accepted that it is implicated with asthma now. So. Unfortunately, they routinely give it to a lot of kids. If you have uh, ear tubes or tonsils, they routinely give acetaminophen uh, suppositories to the young ones. Uh, I've mm-hmm. seen them, um, you know, we're using IV acetaminophen now for pain relief in uh, the adult population. Yes. And, yeah, so that's something you really need to talk to your anesthesiologist about. Um, uh, it's people with metabolic problems, um, uh, probably, you know, with the MTHFR and the myo problems that we see in our population, shouldn't really use the Tylenol. Maybe you could bring your own dye-free ibuprofen to the hospital with you. So that's something you really need to talk to the doctor about. Um, what else is he going to give your child? And, you know, the most important thing um, uh, you want to talk about, they pretty much know about the mitochondrial dysfunction considerations. You know, you may want to do some pre-op testing, do some carnitine levels, um, the hydration. Uh, you want to avoid fasting for a long time, so you want to be that first case. Uh, pretty much it's it said to avoid lactated ringers. In children, when you always pretty much use normal saline anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to watch your temperature and blood glucose. Uh and just be care, careful with a lot of the muscle relaxants and the propofol. So the, the anesthesia community kind of understands that myo uh, dysfunction considerations. And it was in that article in the British Journal of Anesthesia, too. That's a good one to basically print and bring to your anesthesiologist. I'm sure he's probably seen it. You know, you want to go ahead and discuss the use of nitrous oxide, and if you remember, it's all about the dose. I mean, we rarely use it for long cases anymore. You might want to discuss using it. If you have a child who's going to have, it's a dental procedure, you can have it done very simply with a few minutes of nitrous and support uh, support before and after with some extra B12. Um, it might be better to do that instead of putting them into the hospital and going through a general anesthetic. Um, the most important thing you can tell your anesthesiologist also is just to keep the anesthetic as simple as possible. You know, just keep it simple. Only give him what he definitely needs. Yeah, absolutely needs. And I think, right. you know, anesthesia you know, <laughs> anesthesia is very individualized, you know, and sometimes we revert to these protocols that give a lot of drugs, but if you make him aware that he has these problems with detoxification and he has some um, metabolic uh, problems or some, you know, uh, SNPs in, in the MTHFR, um, they will they will pull back and you know it's 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 I think they'll understand that kind of approach much better than going in there and telling them don't use nitrous, don't use this, don't use that. Okay. I think what we're going to do is is find those articles and post them on mthfrsupport.com. Yeah. So that okay. people can access them. Uh, it sounds to me, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I, li- I I always like to sum up what my uh, what my um, my guests are saying, because uh, I, I I feel like I know my audience fairly well. Uh, okay, that, can I uh, can I can I please. just add one more thing? Um, 
you know, one of the things that, you know, when you go under an anesthetic, you realize that it is a chemical exposure, okay? But it's a necessary chemical exposure. You've got to give an anesthetic if you're going to have surgery. But, you know, you want to look at detoxification and things that you can do before and after, okay, to kind of help clear these chemicals. So, you know, remember detoxification things. And it's best if you have an autistic child to call his biomedical doctor and, and talk to him about this before you go under an anesthetic. So cause a lot of kids, um, you know, the most important thing is hydration and elimination. You want to hydrate your child before and after the procedure. You know, think kidney. So you want to make sure that he has, he can clear those drugs that he is going to get. Um, SSL baths may be good for some kids. Uh, things that kind of bind, we use binders in the, in the uh, on autism community like charcoal or berber or parsley or clay. Um, you know, you can support uh, the liver with some milk thistle, some antioxidants, um, you know, magnesium, uh, you know, and then, of course, lymphatic drainage, you know, just the massage and, and, and trampoline and dry brushing. So you really want to, you know, talk to your doctor before and after the surgery, talk to your biomedical doctor to kind of see what best works to help him detoxify these drugs or help, help your child detoxify these drugs after the anesthetic. You know, make sure that he's well hydrated and that he's pooping and, and all those channels of elimination are open. That's good advice. That's really good advice. So people with detoxification problems, MTHFR, uh, mitochondrial problems, these are the things that need to be brought to the anesthesiologist's attention. And it sounds like the anesthesiologists <clears throat> are probably more oriented and more understanding of the significance of the mitochondrial problems. Um, sometimes when you throw MTHFR at them, they kind of look at you cross-eyed. Uh, but um, is, oh, uh, maybe not that, is much that your experience? <laughs> maybe not that much anymore. <laughs> maybe, I don't, I don't know where it is these days. You know? Yeah, so I mean, approach... I think they're a little bit more aware. They're a little bit more aware. But that's when, okay. you know, um, and they know I, we're not using nitrous oxide in the operating rooms too much anymore. Okay. So if you could sum up for us, and I think this is this would be beneficial. Um, the things that we should look out for, uh, the things that uh, the manner in which we, we should approach anesthesiologists. And remember, people, you have the right to ask the doctor what's going on. I mean, it is your absolute right to say, well, this is what I'd like you to know. <clears throat> it's the uh, healthcare professional's job to uh, discuss with you things. And... Um, you know, there's certain anesthesias that are necessary. I think uh, Sim tells us, and rightfully so, that this is a chemical exposure, and it's a it's a fairly toxic chemical exposure, but a necessary one, and you can mitigate it by doing certain things that she's mentioned. Uh, and mm -hmm. so it doesn't have to be a um, it doesn't have to be a, a an injurious thing that lasts for a long time. There are things you can do to uh, to help this along. If you, uh, if anybody in the chat room has any questions, I see a lot of people listening. Uh, I don't see any typing going on. Uh, I would be happy to uh, transmit a um, a message and ask it of Sim right now. 
Um, is there any other words of wisdom that you'd like to give us that would help? Uh, this is a very important uh, subject matter. So is there anything else that you'd like to give us that um, people can utilize uh, to keep their children um, safe? Well, I think, you know, just call the anesthesia department ahead of time and try to talk to an anesthesiologist before and let him know, you know, what your concerns are. Um, you know, approach it in a way where, you know, you know that, he, you know, try to ask him to please just keep it as simple as possible. And you do have the right to ask what drugs are going to be given. And, um, you know, one of the things that I'd be pretty strong about is, is the Tylenol issue. And uh, there are other things that you can do besides Tylenol, and that's something mm-hmm. that you may have to discuss with them. Uh, believe it or not, there's some anesthesiologists that are kind of backing off from the Tylenol. I, I find that. They're not giving it as much as they used to. But I know, find that amazing because I had recently, well, recently, uh, had a me IV Tylenol. Now I'm upset. <laughs> you had IV Tylenol? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> you know, I said, oh, that sounds interesting, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, They're using IV Tylenol a lot. And um, I don't know. I, I, uh, I don't use it routinely unless uh, the doctor orders it. And I, I question and I tell him what I think about it. <laughs> But um, I have yeah. no doubt that you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have no doubt that I do too. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I mean, there's okay. a lot of information. It's a good thing. Our, our, yeah, <laughs> our kids are, you know, our kids are sick, and 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 you, you know, you're going to protect your If we your don't advocate and, for them, who will advocate for them? That's right. That's right. And you, you know, you just got to realize that. I think if you approach it in a way, uh, in, in a concerned mother kind of way or, or father kind of way and 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 not try to tell him what to do. I mean, it's all about their ego too, but, uh, and I think right. they'll listen, you know. One thing about anesthesia huh? is that it is a very individualized protocol, you know. It, it, it depends on a lot of different factors of how long the surgery is going to be and, you know, what kind of surgery it's going to be and, and the effects of the child, you know, the, the size of the child. And, and if you tell them that, you know, you have a kid that doesn't detox well, that's sick, you know, they're going to know, I'm not going to use the normal stuff. I may back off a little bit. But, you know, as if anything, they ha- you know, you have to give anesthetics. And there is a safe way to, to do it. And believe it or not, the anesthetics now are so much more specific, um, you know, receptor-specific, uh, you know, long time ago we used to have gases that you would breathe in and they would stay in your fat and it would take you a couple of days to clear everything. Now, you know, you have SIBO where you breathe it in and you breathe it out and only 2 to 5% of it is metabolized. So, I mean, that's a good thing. I mean, that's why, you know, anesthetics have improved. That's why we can have all this in and out kind of anesthesia, mainly because of um, the anesthetics that have become more receptor-specific. They don't have all the side effects that they used to have 20, 30 years ago. A, uh, there was an interesting question here on the uh, chat, and uh, it says, uh, "What advice do you have for dentists who treat a lot of children with autism? <clears throat> excuse me, who may not have had any testing for MTHFR defects? Should they avoid nitrous oxide with all untested children on the spectrum?" Well, you see, that's 
And if you can't answer the question or you don't feel comfortable, just say Oh, yeah. That. No, no, no. no. I mean, that's, that's the dilemma that you have, okay? Um, mm-hmm. You know, nitrous, nitrous oxide, the, the problem, it's the dose of the nitrous oxide. If you give it for a long time, I mean, I had a chronic exposure where I was breathing this gas every Friday for like six or seven hours, okay? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had this chronic exposure where I had this neuropathy, okay? And I have the MTHFR. So, you know, you have to look, you know, you have to look at the benefits versus the risk. And, right. um, you you know, the problem in that study that they had out years ago is that this this child had, you know, hours and hours of an anesthetic with nitrous in it in two consecutive anesthesias in, in, a, short of, in a short period of time, which severely depleted his B12. So, you know, it's... You have a lot of dentists, and I've talked to some dentists um, that do take care of these kids. And, you know, when you, when you think of the nitrous oxide, you breathe it in, you breathe it out. When you give an IV drug, I mean, 100% of that drug has to be metabolized and use all these, you know, use all those detox systems to get it out. So, you know, is it better to just use a few minutes of nitrous oxide versus having to do more drugs? You understand what I'm saying? That, that's a, it's a hard question to kind of answer. You really have to, um, uh, you know, look at the child. You know that, you know, nitrous oxide depletes your B12. And if you, <clears throat> a lot of these autistic kids are on B12 shots or they have some type of my, uh, uh, methylation support in place already, okay? So uh, you have to kind of take the path of least least uh, resistance. If you didn't want to have it done in the doctor's office because that's all they use is nitrous and you go into the hospital, then you're going to have a general anesthetic with all the other drugs, okay? So that's something you really need to talk with with your biomedical doctor before you have the procedure and with um, the dentist also. And some dentists, uh, you know, do offer a little bit of sedation instead of the nitrous, but, you know, it's, it's 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 a hard decision to make, but I think that uh, the few minutes that you're under the nitrous oxide, if you um, uh, support, if you have some methylation support in place, I think it would be fine. Mhm. Well, it sounds like I mean, um, if I don't miss my guess, this is quite individualized. Right. Right. Okay, and there's nothing wrong with that because um, what can you say? Right, and that's okay. It and has, that's, it has to be individualized, yeah. Yeah. right? And it's, it's a clinic, and it's it's a clinical decision. Right, right. And and you know, you explain to you know a lot of kids are sick, and and we're putting a lot a lot of kids to sleep that are very ill. So you know, we're aware of the problems that you can run into, and you know, we're aware of the mitochondrial dysfunction in these kids, and we're aware of the methylation problems that these kids have. So we have to look at, at um, you know, all the drugs that we have and, and try to keep it as simple as possible and try to uh, take the path of least resistance. So, you know, where we'll have the least amount of problems, you know, post-op. So what you're, sa- what you're saying is the anesthesiologists are, are in fact aware of these various issues and we simply need to bring it to their attention. And, uh, right. Politely asked to keep it as um, as simple as possible, because right. let's face it, they they have your child's life in their hands, and they have to make right. decisions of how 
deep the anesthesia needs to go, depending on the procedure, how long the anesthesia has to be there. There's a lot of decisions to be made, and um, you know that's why anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists are some of the best uh, clinicians on the planet. To be perfectly honest. Well, you know, it's 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 hard, you know, when you have a child undergoing anesthesia and you want to advocate for him, and you have the right to advocate for them, and you have the right to ask the anesthesiologist questions of what are you going to give my child, and 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 but. You know, when you talk to them, try to tell them, you know, please try to keep it simple. Um, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, and, I, and they've heard this too, a lot of kids in the autism community have problems with anesthesia. Um, uh, when they're given too many drugs or when, um, uh, you know, the anesthesiologist is not aware of the medical problems that the kid has. But a lot of, you know, there's a lot of... Um, Articles in our community that that uh, do discuss, you know, problems with methylation and with mitochondrial disease also, um, mitochondrial dysfunction and disease. So anesthesia, you know, well, the anesthesiologist is aware of it. We just have to make sure that they know that our child has this, and that's that's the big, big disconnect because they still think of autism as a mental disease, not a medical disease. True. True, but even that's changing now. Okay, and even if they think of it as a mental disease, and you bring up the biomedical issues and the uh, the epigenetic issues, uh, you're putting them on notice. And and if they're oriented to this, then um, they will make allowances for it. Okay, and that's um, that's good. Well, you know. I got to tell you, this has been this has been an eye-opening thing, especially about the Tylenol, by the way. <laughs> okay, I didn't realize how much of an issue it was. I mean, you know, I've read it, and then of course I, you know, I shrug my shoulders and say, "Well, it's Tylenol." You know, it's a big deal. But uh, I didn't realize the uh, the complete uh, how significant it was, and uh, how, how it really interferes with the Krebs cycle and the ability to make ATP and so forth. Um, I have to tell you that this has been an incredible discussion. Uh, do you have any parting words for our uh, our audience that you'd like them to um, anything that you'd like them to know to take away with them? Well, you know, just uh, you know, be an advocate for your child, and just tell the anesthesiologist please keep it as simple as possible. And you know, if the anesthesia people want to do the job, they want to. You know, uh, that's our our job is to provide an individualized care plan. So I think if you approach it in that manner, um, you'll, you'll get a lot of good cooperation from the anesthesiologist. Well, I'd like to hear that because um, I think people are still, you know, thinking that they don't have the right to speak to or uh, bring things uh, in and um, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for uh, what information they need so that they can, you know, give the best anesthesia, the safest anesthesia, because, like I said, it's a, it can be a scary thing, and you do have somebody's life in your hands, you know. Right. And um, I, uh, how long have you been, how long have you been, uh, you've been an anesthetist for over 25 years. That's amazing. Mm, about, thir- about, about, about 30 years. <laughs> Wow, a little bit longer. I must, I must, I must, I have, I must have an old bio here. <laughs> yeah, I think you have an old bio. It's a new bio, but I, I, with the changes in it. So I'm sorry. 
Yeah, no, I've been doing this since uh, 1984. I I got out of anesthesia school in 1983. Yeah, I got out of anesthesia school in 1983. So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, what I find, too, a lot of the doctors now, I mean, you know, they're starting to think like we are. You know, they're starting to ask questions and and look at a more functional approach. You know, you still have uh, a lot of people that don't, but... um, I think a lot more people are, you know, cleaning up their diets and <laughs> looking at environmental factors than they did 20 years ago. That's true. That's true. And just the fact that they're willing to listen and willing to uh, make compensations for uh, for uh, the children or the people who are having uh, the epigenetic problems, it's uh, that's a wonderful thing. You know. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this has been an eye-opener for me. I know that. And um, I know for our audience, uh, they've been wanting, they, we often get these questions, and uh, honestly, you know, I try my best to answer them, but, you know, you, you've given me the, the best answers to give to my clients tonight. You know, I now know what to tell them to do and what not to do um, based on on their particular uh, references. So I appreciate the time that you put in you know, and the time that you gave us tonight, because I know you're a busy lady. Well, thank you. And uh, you know, please let me know if I can help out any other way. Do you have, um, I, I meant to ask, do you have a website of your own? or? Um, uh, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> I, I was looking today, and I'm like, usually at the end they say, you know, the, my guests say usually have a website or they do something, and I, you know, I let them, you know, let everybody know how to get in touch with them, but... Um, I didn't find one for you, and I was like, I figured I'd better ask. <laughs> well, I'm just, um, you know, I'm I'm a busy mom raising a teenager, and uh, <laughs> I'm just in high well, school. Then, then, then we know that you're a, a busy mom. I know how that can be. Yeah. Having three son- having three sons of my own. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I would thank everybody for listening in tonight. Um, like I said, we're having the beginning of a blizzard here, so. I'm going to sign off and attempt to get home before it gets any worse. <laughs> Still in my office. And as much as I like being in my office, I don't think I want to spend the next 48 hours here uh, looking out the window. So uh, I wish okay. everybody a good night. Thank you very much, Sam, for being with us tonight. And, uh, okay, thank you. Keep guys, guys, keep an eye on mthfrsupport.com and uh, the rest of the websites that we usually do. Uh, we're usually looking at mbim.org. And we're going to have more guests um, very soon uh, with varied subjects. Again, thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. Thanks, Jeff. Bye-bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.